one of my uh, favorite seminary professors, um, his name was Dr. Bill Barber. It is Dr. Bill Barber, not a was. Um, and just a very neat, uh, very well-dressed, I always put all of us young guys to shame um, when we would come to class, but one of the things that I so enjoyed and so appreciated about Dr. Barber and the things that I still appreciate about him is that he would come to class and he would teach us things. This in, in particular was our church administration classes. He pastored for 40 years. And so a lot of times it was kind of story times with Dr. Barber, but, but often he would get so excited about this opportunity for us to come together, worship God, to teach his word. And what a privilege it was that he would just be teaching along and then pretty soon he'd just break out in that song right there. A mighty fortress is our God. And he would just start quoting this thing, right? <laughs> every, every word and really loved and really appreciated his heart. And then he would always end and say, man, if that doesn't wake you up, if that song doesn't wake you up, you don't have a pulse, you know? <laughs> You're just dead. And so I was so appreciative this morning when I, when I heard... Uh, heard the song, and, and brought back all those memories. Well, today, if you want to open in your Bibles to the book or the epistle to the Galatians, that's where we're going to be. I'm going to spend a little bit of a time just overviewing, and then specifically we'll be in chapter 5, verses 14 through 26. Uh, we'll get there, though. You can follow along with me. I'll start in uh, chapter uh, chapter 1. So, um when we think about this amazing letter, it has some very applicable things to our lives. It's a guarding of the gospel. It is Paul's only letter where he wrote to multiple churches that we are aware of. Sometimes I think we think often of uh, the letter to the Ephesians as a letter that was definitely circulatory. It moved around. But this letter in general was, was very much written to a region of Galatia. So if you can kind of imagine with me, if this is, uh, I'm probably backwards. Yeah, it'd be backwards for here. Let me do this. So if this is Israel, right, right here, and you kind of come up around uh, the Mediterranean Sea, this bottom side, that's all the region north of that is Galatia. We would call that Turkey today if that helps you in your mind. But every time Paul does a missionary journey, he goes back through those Galatian churches. He visits every one of them. It says in Acts that he intended to go to them after the Jerusalem Council just to make sure they understood that the gospel was by grace through faith and by grace through faith alone. And uh, they had settled that no work could save a man, no work of the law could save a man, no mixture of that uh, was to be in the gospel of Jesus Christ. So I want us to just get there. We'll catch up uh, to where we're going to end up in and, and Paul's more practical Theology of the book starts in chapter 5, and, and I break that down that way, and, and, and most of the time, we'll see this a little bit later, we see that Paul starts with theology, uh, establishing those things, and then he answers the question, so what? I love Pastor How he always, he helps me to remember when I'm trying to prep to preach that don't forget the so what, right? <laughs> Great, we got all the information right, so what, right? How does that look in our lives? And this is, this portion that we're going to get to today in chapter 5 is that. That so what of the gospel. So if you'll take a look in chapter 1, verses 6 through 8, we're going to see there the, the problem that is going on in the churches in the region of Galatia. It says, I marvel that you are turning away so soon from him who called you in the grace 
of Christ. I want to stop just for a second there because we blow by that word so often, grace, right? We hear it, we understand it, but I'm telling you that that will be the main theme in this, for the rest of this epistle. Paul is going to bring a contrast between what it means to be under grace, that which God has just given you. You do not deserve it, and the law, something that you would do to think you could earn it. So uh, what's he say there? I marvel that you are turning away so soon from him who called you in the grace of Christ to a different gospel, which is not another, but there are some who trouble you and want to pervert the gospel of Christ. So the, they're, they're not uh, denying Jesus, but they are perverting the grace and faith alone save a person. So verse 8 there says, but even if we or an angel from heaven preach any other gospel to you, then what we have preached to you, let him be accursed. Notice the we there in verse 8. Paul is very clearly including himself in this text. If we, what is he saying? We, the apostles, if we come back to you and preach a different gospel to you than that which we originally preached, let me be accursed. That's how serious Paul is about this situation. Later in the book, we're going to see that Peter wavers a little bit under the pressure of the Jews, and he separates himself from Gentiles like you and I when it comes time to eat. And Paul has to, it literally says, to get in his face, right? He has to rebuke him to his face. And that even Barnabas, Paul's one who most would, we would, would understand to be one of Paul's mentors, has to be rebuked in this situation in Antioch because the pressure, the religious pressure to separate and to accept a gospel that was different was so real for this church. So, so even if we or an angel from heaven, Paul goes on, preach any other gospel to you than that which we preach to you, let him be, acc be accursed. Paul goes on to authenticate his apostleship. If you know much, if you're much of a student of the New Testament, you're going to find that theme all the way through the New Testament. Paul's apostleship. His calling as an apostle, right? Big A apostle, not little A sent one. Big A apostle is constantly under pressure, right? Constantly under pressure from the, from the Jewish teachers. And so he is always affirming that. He here and early on in these chapters is going to make sure that he has the authority over these Jewish teaching men. And he does that in a couple ways. But let's read here what it says. Uh, in verse 16, there, um, nope. Where am I at? In verse 11. I apologize. Chapter 1, verse 11 and 12. But I made known to you, brethren, that the gospel which was preached by me is not according to man. For I neither received it from a man, nor was I taught it. But it came through the revelation of Jesus Christ. Paul is authenticating. He, he's taking a step above. Or many others who will be sent, many missionaries out of the first century church, will be sent ones. They will be sent because they had learned the right doctrine. But what is Paul saying? I did not learn it from a man, right? Three times, three times, if you get my humor, three times in, in the book of the Acts of the Apostles, it is repeated, right? Uh, Paul's experience and revelation of who Jesus Christ was. Three times he repeats it to make sure that we would know. Luke repeats that statement. So we understand that Paul is sent not by man, but by who? Jesus Christ. He's, so he's pulling rank here. He's letting them know that uh, his authority is not from a man, but from Jesus himself. 
Paul clarifies the word justification throughout this entire text. He is going to uh, lean heavy on this word and this term and let us not look past it because we hear about it all the time. And it is actually used different ways in the New Testament. So this word justification is a, is a, is a weighty word. I like to explain it to people like, you know, my wife and I, we just moved back to town. We bought a home. We borrowed a couple hundred thousand dollars to buy a home. And it would be as if somebody came to me with, with no regard of how good they thought I was or how bad they thought I was and came with their checkbook and wrote me a check for that house. And they paid it off. They justified that loan. It's a legal term. It's a wiping out of debts. That is the term that Paul is going to use all the way through Galatians here to, to, for us to understand that, that, that God wiped out your debt in Jesus Christ. There is nothing that you could have done. There was no payment you could have made to have made it. And so he has this wordplay and this contrast throughout the entire book that helps us to understand that you cannot walk out of Galatians and think there's some way you can work your way to heaven. He is not going to allow that. So justification. So after rebuking Peter and, uh, Peter, and Peter, whoever that was, uh, <clears throat> after rebuking Peter and Barnabas and others for separating themselves from the Gentiles in Antioch, he says this in chapter 2, verse 16. Knowing that a man is not justified by the works of the law, but by faith in Christ Jesus. Even we have believed in Christ Jesus that we might be justified, what? By faith in Christ and not by the works of the law. For by the works of the law, no flesh shall be justified. You cannot get clearer than this. Paul is clearly over and over making this statement to the Galatian church, there is no way for you to be saved no amount of church attendance, no amount of good works, no amount of right dressing. That's not salad dressing. That's clothing. All right. I'm just seeing if you're awake. I love you, regardless of what you think of me. <laughs> now I'm completely off track here. Okay, so Paul clarifies. He goes on then to clarify the purpose of the law says this in Galatians 3, 24 and 25. Therefore, the law was our tutor to bring us to Christ that we might be justified by faith. Now, what's he saying? Is the law bad? He answers this question in the epistle. The law is not bad. Why? It was a tutor. What does a tutor do? He brings you along. He, or she, he or she brings you along to teach you that which you're trying to get to. The law did what? It points out our sin. So, uh, as, as we think about our life and those who are outside, the law in itself is still helpful today. Why? You can't read through Leviticus and feel very good about your life. I suggest that you do it at least once a year because you cannot come out of there and, and, and not understand how God has called you to be completely holy and set apart. There, it defines sin at the most brutal and embarrassing levels. Only in that we can look at it and go, yep, that's me, that's me, that's me, that's me. I'm, it leaves you hopeless. That's the purpose of the law, is that you would look into it like a mirror, and you would see your sin and say, how can I get saved? So that is the purpose of the law. Verse 25, but after faith has come, what? We are no longer under that tutor. Why? Because the law was in place to bring us to Christ. 
This brings us uh, to our text today, but I just want to clarify for those of you who might be visiting that we affirm the gospel of Jesus Christ. We affirm that there is no way for you. So many people say, well, maybe I'll come around or I'll get around, I'll clean up my life and then I'll turn to Christ. That's that's a false understanding of the gospel, beloved. Nobody deserves heaven. Everyone deserves hell. The only way you come to spend eternity with Christ is through him. He did the work on the cross. You cannot do the work on your own. Paul goes on to say here in Galatians, if you could do the work on your own, then Jesus Christ died for no reason. Right? If you could work your way through the gates, if you could be good enough, if you could attend church enough, if you could not smoke enough or not drink enough or not have sex outside of marriage enough, none of that, never. If you lived the most pure life that you could imagine, it would not be good enough. Only Christ is the road to heaven. You can turn to him at any point in time. And today is your day. If you feel that, you sense that in your heart of hearts, maybe you've been holding on or maybe you think that you'll get around to it, God calls you. Today is the day of salvation. Today, respond. All you have to do is ask and Christ will come. He will fill your life and he will change it from the inside out, not the outside in. Like other epistles, Paul turns to practical theology here in Galatians 5, verses 14 through 26. Um, many of his other epistles, Paul established great theology all the way, and he comes to the end. In Romans, we think of it as a great therefore, right? Therefore, that we should renew our minds. And he goes right into all the different giftings in, in Romans 12 and talks to us about how we can apply that to the church and how the church is the body of Christ and us operating together is so important that we can't be full without our hand or our foot or our leg, that it's important for us to become a part of the body of Christ. So he transitioned out of all the theology of, of the hopelessness of man all the way through the hopelessness and what was going on with Israel and how God was going to set them apart for a later time. And he says, therefore, since all that, God has saved us. Since that, do this. Well, this is that portion of the text where Paul switches out of us understanding the gospel rightly, justification by grace through faith alone, and he says, how are we going to walk out this life? So let's take a look here um, at some of these texts. As we stated last week, the unity of the saints is of utmost importance we talked last week about church discipline and how, it, and how it accomplishes two very important things. It calls out a continuation of sin for the purpose of restoration. In other words, if you'll remember that if you can continue on in sin and your brother is coming to you continually and you don't change, that there's some kind of heart issue there. We almost have to assume that the Spirit of God is not in there working on you. It's not that you don't sin. It's that you don't care that you sin. Number two, it protects the unity of the saints, church discipline does. The church can, can and will pull together uh, with pressure from the outside, but sin on the inside always tears us apart. So there's a warning there for elders and teachers, right, that if that sin remains and it's in the body, that we're to be getting it out. There's a problem, right? It's for restoration of that saint, but secondly, it's for protection of the flock. So we'll find here that the theme of today's message is for, for uh, in verse 14 there, if you want to have a look, 
For all the law is fulfilled in one word, even in this, you shall love your neighbor as yourself. So Paul here, in, in, in a, after all this talk of the law and grace and having the spirit of Christ, he sums up the law. And what does he say? You shall love your neighbor as yourself. That's the summation of the law. It's unity that God desires for us to have in the church. Now, if you pay attention here, uh, the structure of this, these next sections, and it's a little bit weird. You're probably looking at your text and you're saying, well, what, Carl, why are you two or three verses in front of, of uh, the imperative of walking the Spirit? Well, if you'll, I want you to have a look, and I'll tell you why. Take a look at verse 15, and then take a look at verse 26. Let's do this. Notice the one another's in here. They become like bookends of what Paul is trying to teach. He's introduced this. We've transitioned out of theology to practicality. And he's saying, love your neighbor as yourself. And then what's he going to say here in verse 15? But if you bite and devour one another, be, beware lest you are consumed by one another. And skip on down to verse 26. Look at this. It says, let us not become conceited, provoking one another and envying one another. Well, this is Paul's way of writing and letting us know. These are bookends. This is a thought. These one another's, Right? that we are to be treating and having unity and love in the body of Christ. And we are not to bite and devour one another, and we're to love one another. And so everything in between is going to tell us how we have unity in the body of Christ. How do we have unity in our homes? How do we have unity in the church or in our church small groups when somebody's upset with us? Well, he's going to clearly answer that by this imperative um, and this theme of keeping that unity by walking in the Spirit. So we must ask this question, how are we going to have unity? Paul says this, we must walk in the Spirit. There are two, two things here that we need to pay attention. There's a lot of weird language out there in today's church world about what it means to walk in the Spirit. Let me clarify what I believe that God's Word is teaching and what we need to understand moving forward. First and foremost, walking in the Spirit is is submitting yourself to that which the Spirit has produced. First Peter says that holy men of old, they were carried along by the Holy Spirit, right? In order to write these words down, we know that in John 14, uh, Jesus tells the 12 that the Holy Spirit will come upon them, and for what very reason? So that they would remember that what Jesus has told them, and they wrote it down, did they not? That's the Spirit of God coming on man in order to have us an inerrant, right? An inspired word of God. The Holy Spirit is both, uh, has been given for us to lean on and to look at. We don't have to wonder about those things. Secondly, obedience to that which the Spirit is revealing in you. That's through prayer and internal witness, right? We're not to be just this dogmatic, cold-hearted life in God that we just turn here and we try and follow all these rules, right? We've missed the heart of God, Right? The Spirit of God, He Himself has come to dwell in us. Think about this, church. Right? Forever, well, not forever, but since 1 Kings 8, the Spirit of God came where? He came into the temple. He dwelt in the temple. All the people were to come on all the feasts and Passovers, and they were to have a meal with who? God. Right? The new covenant comes. And what this absolute miracle happens, and now where does God dwell? Does He dwell in temples made with man? No. He does not. He dwells in our hearts. He dwells within us. He's alive. It's not, so, so this being led by the Spirit is not only 
following and loving and obeying his commands, but it's also walking and loving and enjoying the fact that God himself lives in us. So, Galatians 5, verses 16 through 18. I say then, walk in the spirit and you should not fulfill the lust of the flesh. For the lust of the flesh, or excuse me, for the flesh lusts against the spirit and the spirit against the flesh. And these are contrary to one another. Pay attention to the so that. You do not do the things you wish. If you were led by the spirit, you are not under the law. God himself has come and taken residence inside of us, has given us his spirit, the spirit of Christ, even as called in uh, the second chapter, dwells in us. For what purpose? Because God recognizes that this flesh is also coming right along with us. This temple isn't so holy. The flesh remains. I, I always like to say, you guys heard me say it last week, that our default mode right? If we're not paying attention, we're not walking in the spirit is to, is to lean on the flesh. And it's, it will happen if we are not actively walking and staying in step with the spirit. We will rely on our own rationale, our own business sense, our own feelings, and all those things can be thwarted and twisted by the devil. So what is Paul saying here? Walk in the spirit. Stay there. Be actively doing this. So you don't fall into this other reality that exists all the time, and that is the fact that our flesh is along. And so then we can say with Paul, right? Uh, what does he say? To live, as, uh, to, uh, to, to live as Christ and to die as what? Gain, right? We can all say that, right? As we push back and we beat off those things of the flesh that, that drag us down, right? That's wearisome. So we want to say that. I, I'm ready to be gone out of this body. I'm ready to to not have that fight with an unregenerate natural mind, but to just live in a body that God has designed me to have and be with him for eternity. Amen? Amen. So, so he says here in verse 18, but if you are led by the Spirit, you are not under the law. Again, bringing that contrast. You can't be led by the Spirit and under the law. Why? Because the Spirit of God is alive in you. You no longer need the law. The law, the law led you to the Spirit of God. Take a look at verses 19 through 21. Now it says, The works of the flesh are evident, which are fornication, uncleanness, lewdness, idolatry, sorcery, hatred, contentions, jealousies, outbursts of wrath, selfish ambitions, dissensions, heresies, envy, drunkenness, Revelies and the like. Paul is saying here, if these attributes are present, then we need to take note they are not from God. Now, beloved, notice that it says here, I tell you, he warns you, right? I tell you beforehand, just as I also told you in time past, that those who practice such things will not inherit the kingdom of God. Now, there's no one in here that cannot identify with one or more of those things in that list. And the warning is, is if you practice, notice the word practice. It is active. It is present. In other words, you choose to do it, you want to do it, and you're not going to change. If you practice that, the Bible is so clear here and says you will not enter the kingdom of heaven. 
It does not say if you struggle with. If, if it said you struggle with, we'd be in big trouble, right? We struggle with all these things in this list. Who in here hasn't struggled with one or more of these all at the same time? The idea is if you have pridefully stepped up in your heart and you say, I'm going to do that, that's the way I am, you will not, the Bible says, enter the kingdom of heaven. Again, this is why church discipline uh, is so necessary because the one who practices division is probably not born again. There's a difference between practicing and falling. And we're talking about that. And Paul continues on here, but the fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control. And what does he say here? Against such, there is no law. He continues to drive home this contrast of what it looks like to be in the Spirit versus under the law. The apostle brings the theme of unity of the saints back into view as he closes in Galatians 5, 24 through 26. And those who are Christ have crucified the flesh with its passions and evil desires. Notice that Paul puts in here, uh, if you practice sin, this contrast, right? If you practice sin in verse 21, you will not inherit the kingdom of God. And those who belong to Christ have actively crucified the flesh. Verse 25, if we live in the Spirit, let us also walk in the Spirit. Let us not become conceited, provoking one another, envying one another. Beloved, the question is, how is it that we can live in unity within the body of Christ? There's only one answer. We must walk in the Spirit. We must keep our eyes fixed on Christ. We must have an, a, a real, alive, real relationship with Jesus Christ. It is the only way we will stay in unity with each other and with mankind. One, if not the main theme of the epistle to the Philippians is the unity of the body of Christ. Listen to what Paul says in chapter two, verses one through four. Therefore, if there is any consolation in Christ, if any comfort of love, if any fellowship of the spirit, if any affection and mercy, Fulfill my joy, being like-minded, having the same love, being of one accord, of one mind. Let nothing be done through selfish ambition or conceit, but in lowliness of mind, let each esteem others better than himself. Let each of you look not only for his own interests, but for the interests of others. This unity of the body of Christ is active. It requires us to say no and to be constantly crucifying the flesh, right? And constantly yielding our hearts and inviting Christ to be the king of our lives. Let's pray. Lord, uh, thank you for this opportunity to just take a, a very practical look into the book of Galatians, Lord. Just a peek as we come to it, Lord. I, uh, I pray, God, that... Um, if there are any in here that don't understand the gospel rightly, Lord, and they think they've got to get something right, Lord, I pray that they would clear up their minds in this aspect, Lord. There's no one sitting in here who will end up in heaven because we were good. Lord, you alone are good. 
Lord, I pray that you would draw them near. I pray, Lord, that you would give them the courage even to speak the words or to ask for help. Maybe they've come with a friend. That they would rightly appropriate the gospel in their lives and, and watch the miracle of God's spirit coming to life inside of us in such a way that it radically changes the way that we look and walk and live, Lord. I pray that you would help them with that. Lord, as believers, we sit and it is so easy to get pulled back into the things of the world, distracted, I pray, God, that you would help us by your spirit to walk in your spirit, to stay there, Lord, that it would produce fruits of righteousness, fruits of unity within our body, in our families. Lord, help us to take account and to live in such a way, God, that this is true and active in our lives. I pray in Jesus' name.